As we continue through the book of John, John 4, 46, if you want to turn, if you'll turn in your Bibles there, that's where we'll be this morning. <clears throat> so, several years ago, uh, we, were, uh, we were out in the yard uh, playing with the kids, and uh, Noah fell, and he, uh, he hurt his foot. And so, we knew immediately, you know, it was broken, and so uh, we take Noah to the hospital. He was very tiny at the time, and uh, you know, he's two or three years old. Let's see. He was two years old. So we take him to the hospital, and, uh, you know, we spent the day at the hospital, and they got everything fixed up, put him, you know, got him in a little sling, and next day we go, and he gets a cast. And so uh, Noah began to, you know, he's just learning how to get good at walking. And uh, so he has this cast. Well, he broke his foot, and so if you've ever had a, a toddler that's broken a foot, they don't just put a cast on the foot. So if you and I break our foot, they put a cast on the foot because our feet are bigger. Uh, but a toddler's not that way. They, they had to cast him all the way above the knee so that it would stay on. And so Noah has this cast that goes all the way up over his knee. We, we still have the cast today. Uh, and so he's got this cast all the way up on his knee. Well, you know, if you've ever broken a foot or an ankle, I've broken an ankle before, you, you become dependent upon uh, the boot. You know, Grayson just hurt his ankle, so, you know, he had the boot. So you become dependent upon that, and you begin to change the way that you walk. Has anybody ever broken a foot before, and you, you've been, so you know what I'm talking about. So Noah's got this cast on his leg. Again, it comes up above his knee, and so he learned how to adapt and adjust to that, and so he began to walk like a pirate, you know, the straight leg, you know. He would just carry his leg as he would, he would walk, and then he got to where he could run with that cast. I mean, he was a pro at running with this cast. And so finally, you know, he had, uh, he had the cast for several weeks. We go to the doctor. They take the cast off, and we get, you know, we get back home. You know, they've done the x-rays. Everything's back the way it's supposed to be. He's, he's healed up. Everything's good. But here's the problem. As we started watching and observing Noah run around in the yard and around the house and everything, and guess what Noah's doing? He's still running like a pirate. He's still got his legs straightened out. He's still running like he's got this giant cast on his leg. And so we said, Noah, man, look, you're healed. You're okay. You're good. And so it took a while for that to process in his mind because he had become so dependent uh, upon this thing that was temporary, uh, dependent upon this thing that was supposed to help him uh, to be healed. And so today as we talk about the nobleman's son, I, I began to think about that story and, and how, you know, it's funny and we, you know, we laugh and we think, man, that's just, that's just silly. Why would you, you know, you're healed. You've that cast is gone. There's no crutches. There's no dependency. You've been, you've been made new, and yet he still depended upon that cast. Well, as we'll see with the nobleman this morning, I think a lot of people are still walking around like they have a cast on with their faith. You see, we, we've been healed. If you're here this morning and you're a believer, you've been changed. You've been transformed. Ezekiel says you've been given a new heart. All, all things uh, become new. If you're here this morning and you're a believer, you've been transformed. You've been redeemed. You've been rescued. You've been changed back to the way God originally intended for you to be in relationship with Him. But yet we've got a lot of people running around like pirates in a peg leg thinking and having dependency upon 
something that has no validity whatsoever in their life. Now, you can fill in the blank of what that cast is. It may be your dependency upon uh, people and relationships. It may be your dependency upon uh, your job or rules or regulations. There's many, many things that it could be. And yet, so many times when we talk about our individual faith, I feel like we're walking around on crutches. And that's not the way that the Lord intended it to be. You see, this is what God said about the power of the Holy Spirit, about the transformation, the change that takes place within us when we become uh, born again. This is what happens. He says in verse uh, 8 of chapter 1 I think uh, of Acts, I think this will come up on the screen. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. He says this power will, it will so change you, it will so transform you that you're going to be my representatives. You're going to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, I want to ask you a question as we pause for a second here this morning. Can we say that that defines our faith That our faith is so dependent upon Jesus and what he did in our life that it has caused us, it it has been the catalyst for us to move outside of our dependency upon man-made things and put our trust and our dependency wholly and completely upon the power of the Spirit of God that's within us. You see, at the end of chapter 2, Jesus was in Jerusalem. Remember, he said that the power would come upon you and you would go to Jerusalem. End of chapter 2, where's Jesus? Jerusalem and John at the Passover feast. In chapter 3, Jesus said that you would go to Judea. Where was Jesus in chapter 3? Jesus was in Judea. And now we get to the end of chapter 4, and where has Jesus been? Samaria. You see, Jesus is uh, the image of God. Jesus is the manifestation of who God is. He's the incarnation of who God is. And not only did he give us commands, he lived those commands. And so Jesus is not asking you and I to do something today that he's not done before. He says you're going to receive power and you're going to be able to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And so Jesus does that fulfilling his very command in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And so we see here in the book of John now that Jesus has encountered the religious. He's encountered the rejected. He's encountered the chosen Jews when he cleansed the temple. He's encountered the outcast Samaritan. And yet the message of faith is the same for every one of them. It's that faith in anything but Jesus will fail. Faith in anything but Jesus will fail. And so the question this morning then is where is your faith? What what is it that we place our trust in, our, our faith in? You know, it's easy in the Bible Belt to come and say, well, my faith is in Jesus Christ. But do our actions reflect that? Do our actions show that, yes, indeed, not only is my faith in Jesus Christ, but I'm going to uh, exemplify that by living a life that brings glory to Him through that faith. You see, Nicodemus put his faith in religious rules and activities. 
And we've seen examples of that in just the last few weeks of where people have confessed that, you know what, I've been trying to go through the motions. I've been trying to achieve uh, acceptance from God through activity. The woman at the well, she put her faith in failed relationships. You ever known anybody like that? With other people in both of these, uh, Nicodemus, the religious, the woman at the well, the rejected, they both went away disappointed. And so now we get to John chapter 4 and verse 46. This is what the Bible says. It says, He came again uh, to Cana in Galilee, which is, of course, Jesus where he had made the water into wine. And so John is drawing a close to this section uh, of Scripture here. And he's saying, you remember uh, Jesus uh, in Cana, right? You remember the wedding at Cana? And you remember how uh, Jesus miraculously turned the water into wine? He's closing out this section. And he says, at Capernaum, John writes, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him. So here's this official, this important man that hears about Jesus. Now, now let's put ourselves in this man's shoes, okay? This man has a son who's sick. His son is to the point of death to where he feels like he has to do something or his son will die. Now, you know, as as a father, we're responsible for a lot of things. You know, I I know sometimes uh, Melanie will call me and I'll be at work and she'll say, you know, the kids are doing this and the kids are doing that. And I'll say, you know, I'm 20 miles away. I can't do much about that right now. But as a dad, you know, we're responsible For our family, we're responsible. We want to do everything we can to make sure that our children are okay. And anytime something happens to our kids, dad's who you call, right? Dad can fix it. Dad can help you. It's dad, right? It's your father. So here's this dad, and his boy is sick. You know, maybe this is his his firstborn. It's very important to this man that his son be healed. And so, of course, it, you know, a firstborn in their day was a very big deal. Firstborn was the one who inherited all of the family possessions, all of the land. And he desperately wants his son to be healed. So what do you do? You're the nobleman. You're, your son is about to die. You can't rush him down to Memorial Hospital. You're not taking him to the Medicare clinic. You're not taking him to the Walmart quick checkup. No, that's not, that's not happening. And so, so you've tried everything that you can think of to help him, and there's nothing that's working. So all of a sudden, you're in desperation mode. And so he's thinking, what can I do to help my boy? How can I, how can I make this situation better? I've done everything that I can think of, and then this thought comes to his mind. Wait a minute. There is one thing that we can do. There was this wedding. And so I imagine this conversation took place uh, between him and his wife. He, He says, do you remember that wedding that happened not too long ago? 
You, you remember, uh, you know, how uh, Bob and Sue got married, and, and you remember how, uh, you know, they, they're such a wonderful wedding. You know, they're doing fantastic now, and, and how, uh, you know, they're, you remember Sue's dad, you remember he tried to skimp a little bit at the wedding, and so they ran out of the good wine, and so there was this guy there. Do, do you remember his name? Jesus. Yeah, that was it. His name was, his name was Jesus, and I don't know if you heard the story, but he took water. Water. He took foot washing, dirty, dingy water, and he changed it into the best wine they've ever had. I talked to Sue's dad, honey, and he said it was amazing. You know, I wonder if he could do something. Hey, it's our, it's our only shot. What if I go and I talk to Jesus? That's what I'll do. You know, if this man can change the molecular structure of water, surely he can do something for my boy. And so he decided he would go. I mean, think about this. In the time in which we find ourselves, he says, there's no other choice. I'm going to Jesus. But, but wait a minute, honey. Are, are you sure you want to do that? Think about the implications now, it's believed that this nobleman was a high-ranking official in the court of Herod. Now, when you think of Herod, it sends chills down your spines, right? There's like 14 Herods. They all named themselves Herod. Herod the Great was who? Well, Herod the Great was the one that issued the order when Jesus was born that said, any boy under two, I want him slaughtered. So the family of Herod doesn't have a great reputation in Jesus' life, okay? And so she says, honey, wait a minute now. If you go, if you go, what will this mean for your job? What will this mean for your, for your career? What if Herod, which his son at the time, Herod Antipas, was the king at the time, what if Herod finds out about this? And so he's got this, this dilemma, this crisis in his life that he's got to figure out. What is worth more? Is what I have accumulated, my job, my status, my reputation, my career, is that worth more to me than the life of my boy? It could not only mean career suicide. It, it might even mean death. And so he had a choice to make. He, he said, will I risk my life to save my sons? Or will I save my son and risk my life? So what do you do? What do you do? As I was thinking about this situation, my mind came to uh, what Jesus said about following him. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus said this. He, says, uh, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. This was the beginning of this man's walk with Jesus, was self-denial. He came to the point to realize that it was more important that he put his wishes, his desires, his thoughts, his intentions away. And he decided it was worth much more that his boy would live. And so he left home. 
She may have packed him some food. He gets on this journey. Now, he's about 20 or 25 miles away from Jesus, about a four-hour journey. And so the wife stays home. I'm, you know, I'm thinking into the story here. The wife stays home with the son. He's not doing well. He's not going to live. And he leaves on his way to Jesus, not knowing if he'll ever see his boy again. What a story. What a story. And yet we sing this morning how God is a good, good father. And he gives us this perfect example of what a father would do for his son. What a father would do for his son. And so he leaves. So he, do, he goes down to Cana. And the Bible says in the latter part of verse 47, he, and he asked him, so he goes to Jesus, and he asks Jesus to come down and to heal his son. And we don't have quotations here. We just have, he asked him to come down and to heal his son. For he was at the point of death. So we're reminded again by John, this boy is not going to make it. Barring the intervention of Jesus. So in your handout this morning, you see the first blank there is that faith always has an object. It always has an object, a focal point. You see, you, your faith, my faith, our faith is all the same in that you have something in which you have placed your faith in. Something in which you believe in. It, is a, it could be multiple, but it is a singular item, a singular person, a singular thing. There is always a focal point of your faith. You see, this man had one thing on his mind, and it was the healing of his son. And he had gotten to the point in his life to where he realized that the only one who could do anything about it was Jesus. Have you ever been there? You ever been there in your life where you're flat of your back and the only way you can look is up? Have you ever been there when your circumstances seemed to be so overbearing to which you thought there was no way out of your situation? This man's right there. He doesn't know how Jesus will respond. He's putting it all on the line. I imagine as this man went to Cana to meet with Jesus that he didn't stop to talk to anybody. I imagine he didn't take any breaks along the way. I mean, would you? You know, would you stop and take a nap on the road? You know, I mean, we're talking 25 miles. When's the last time you walked 25 miles? You know, so we'd say, well, you know, I'm not taking a break. My boy's sick. I'm not stopping along the way. I'm not uh, getting tied up in conversations. Remember, he's a high-ranking official. There's probably important things that he could be doing, but yet I can imagine that he had one thing on his mind. I got to talk to Jesus. You see, crisis in our life, it really has a way of refocusing our lives, right? You know, when you have a crisis in your life, all the non-essentials, they seem to drift away, don't they? Things become very clear in crisis. And you begin to focus on the only thing that matters at that moment. The things that you thought mattered, well, they don't matter so much anymore, do they? And you begin to drift away. You know, death has a way of doing that. Funerals have a way of doing that. Have you ever, have you ever been to a funeral? 
Have you ever been to a funeral when they talk about uh, all of, uh, you know, they don't, they don't talk about how much money somebody made, and they don't talk about their accolades and their degrees. They just talk about the relational aspect of whoever it is that's laying in that coffin, right? They talk about how God worked in their life, how God used them in their life, how God transformed them. The things that had eternal value, those are the things that you hear about when you go to a funeral. You know why that is? You see, in your life and in my life, in every single person who's breathing air today, there's a God-shaped vacuum in your heart. And it can only be filled with Jesus. You see, we can try to fill it with things that have temporary value. We can try to uh, elevate things in our life to make them more important than they really are. But when it gets down to it, your theology, your background, where you came from, your circumstances, every single person, if you go, go to, a, go to a, a funeral of an unbeliever, what happens? All of a sudden, everybody's a believer, right? In crisis, what do people do? Everyone cries out to God. They may never step the doors, step into the doors of a church, but you let crisis come into an unbeliever's life, someone who doesn't follow Jesus, and all of a sudden, guess what? They're the most religious person you've ever met. Is that true? It always happens. People who never pray, something happens in their life, and they say what? Brother, I need you to pray for me. Why is that? Because inside of every one of us, there is a void in your life without Jesus that can only be filled with Jesus. It can only be filled with him. And so here's this man coming to Jesus. You see, people who never take one step in following Jesus, you have a crisis in their life and he's their best friend. And that's what we see with this nobleman. And so, in verse 48, this is what Jesus says. He says, so Jesus said to him, he said, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, remember, let's rewind. John chapter 2, Jesus said he did not entrust himself to man because what? He knew what was in man. Right? We'll see in John chapter 6, people are following Jesus because of his miracles. And then Jesus turns around, and guess what? In verse 66, it says, many people stopped following Jesus. Right? And so here we see Jesus in chapter 2 didn't entrust himself uh, to, to man because he knew what was in man. Because there's these people that had begun to follow Jesus. For why? For their personal gain and satisfaction and entertainment. Well, if this guy can turn water into wine, you know, eventually we'll see in John 11, he heals uh, Lazarus. He brings him back from the dead. He turns water into wine. He gives sight to the blind. All of these things that Jesus has the ability to do is fascinating to these people. And so they begin to follow Jesus because they're seeing things that they've never seen before. And so Jesus says to the man, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. You see, this is the if God faith. You ever met anybody with if God faith? Let me ask you a question this morning. If Jesus does nothing in this story, now, you know, we get to the end, Jesus heals the nobleman's son. But what if he didn't? So if Jesus does nothing in this story... 
I just want you to think with me. Does it change who Jesus is? Think about it. You see, we say, no, absolutely not, emphatically, no. Jesus is still the Son of God, which is 100% true. So then let's apply that to today. So if Jesus never changes your situation, if Jesus never gives you the job that you want, if your spouse never gets saved, if your children never forgive you, does it change who Jesus is? So, so what is faith? You see, we've got to define what faith really is. And faith is not contingent upon your circumstances. Because why? Because faith, the object of faith, remember, faith always has an object. It has a focal point. And faith, real faith, genuine faith is faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is what? The same yesterday, today, and forever. So contingency faith is not real faith. You see, God, if you will do this for me, have you ever said this? Then I will do this for you. God, if you just give this to me, if you just do this for me, then, God, I will do for you. I will go for you. I will say for you. I will speak for you. You fill in the blank. You see, what we ask for is not always what we need. What we ask for is not always what we need. There's, there's a saying uh, that says God does not just give us what we want. He gives us everything we would want if we knew everything he knows. God doesn't give us everything that we want. He gives us everything that we would want if we knew everything that he knows. You see, that's what faith is. It's believing that God is who he says he is and that he is a good, good father and that he's sovereign and that he'll work all things out according to his will. Tonight, uh, we're a life on mission, how we grow, and we're talking about the scripture that says, thy will be done, not my will be done. So in verse 49, the official says to him, sir, come down before my child dies. So he reiterates his request. Second blank on your handout says, faith built on only if scenarios is built upon false expectations. You see, if you have only if faith, God, I will follow you only if this happens. God, I will say yes to you only if this happens. God, I will obey you only if this happens. Those are all built upon false expectations that what you and I think should happen is superimposed upon the will of God. So in other words, I'm instituting my will in my life, and I'm asking God to be the Santa Claus to grant me the wishes that will help me get that. Faith built on only if scenarios is built upon false expectations. Just look at what this man said to Jesus. He says, if you will come down. You see, he had this expectation that the only way that his son would be healed is if Jesus were present in the, in the presence of his boy and he touched him. We see that in Scripture all the time, right? The woman uh, that touched the cloak of his garment, she felt like she had to touch Jesus Mary and Martha, when Lazarus died, they said, what, if you'd been here physically, if you'd been here, then this would not have happened. And so this man had this expectation that the only way Jesus' power was valid if it, is if Jesus were present. His belief was limited to only what he expected that Jesus could do. Let me say that again. His belief was limited to what he only expected that Jesus could do. 
So let me ask you a question. What is it that you think Jesus can do? Because that's about as far as your faith will go. Because what happens in our human mind and our limited cognitive abilities is that we begin to set these expectations of how we think the scenarios in our life will play out or how we want those scenarios to play out. And then we limit the ability of God in only the scenarios in which we could imagine. Right? I mean, we do that. And so we say, God, if you would do this, God, here's how I think it best would work out. And so if you'll just do this, then we're good. God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. It depends on how big the crisis is, right? In this man's life, it's paramount. It's number one. It's the apex of the most terrible things that have ever happened in his life. And so he limited his belief of what Jesus can do. There's a story about Peter in Acts chapter 12. These verses will come up. Peter's in prison. God miraculously uh, uh, rescues Peter. Uh, If you study the way he was rescued, it's amazing uh, how he got out. The angels unloosened the shackles. They got him out. And so Peter goes to where everybody's hanging out in chapter 12. Uh, verse 14, and it says, uh, so he knocked on the door. He's calling for him to come. The Bible says in verse 14, recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate. So this lady uh, came to the door, recognized that it was Peter. She did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Now imagine, again, the scenario here. Peter's just been freed from prison. They didn't let him go. God rescued him out of it. And so if they find out that he's out, and they will, they're going to come after him. And so he's banging on the door, let me in, let me in, let me in. And so she's like, hey, that's just Peter. I, I should go tell everyone. And so she takes off running. And the Bible says in verse 16, but Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. Now, look here at the uh, pronouns, when they opened, not when she opened. See, Peter's miraculously freed from prison, goes to the house of Mary, knocked on the gate. The lady came to the gate, saw saw it was Peter, and she ran back to tell everyone else. In her disbelief of how, how, how does Peter? No, that can't, that's Peter. In her disbelief of what was going on, she never opened the gate. She didn't open the gate. There was something amazing that happened in her life, and she left the gate closed. I thought about that in my life, and I thought about just like the girl at the gate, Sometimes God does things that we just like, what? And we leave the gate of faith closed. That that couldn't happen. That's not possible. And the gate just stays there closed. I think a lot of people have closed gates of faith in their life. God's standing there. I mean, as a matter of fact, Revelation even says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's there. He's in your situation. Here's this nobleman's boy who's he's about to check out. But Jesus is there. They're, they're at this wedding and they're excited and they're celebrating and all these amazing things are happening. It's not just in crisis. All these amazing things are happening and Jesus is there. You see, your gate of faith... Jesus wants to come in. He wants to work in your situation. He's got the ability to do far beyond what you could ever imagine. 
And yet so many times we just leave the gate closed. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. He can do whatever he wants to do. He's God. And I'm grateful that the limitations of my expectations for God do absolutely nothing to his ability. He can do whatever he wants. You see, this is what the Bible says in verse 50. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. He says, go, your son will live. Now, here's the crisis of faith in this man's life. He's made a 25-mile journey. He is risking potentially everything in his life up to and possibly including his own life by doing this. And Jesus says, go, your son will live. Now, he's 25 miles away. He's not texting his wife saying, hey, is, is Junior doing better now? And so he has a choice to make. Now, his choice is to see and then believe, which is what Jesus warned him of, unless you see signs and wonders, or his choice is to believe and then see. You see, the same thing happens in your life and in my life. When we come to a crisis of faith, when we come to a crossroad and say, I have the choice, I have the free will to follow after Jesus. Now, I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know how this is going to end. But I just know that he's calling me to do it. And I'm going to do it. That's believing before you see. You see, even our world today, they want, they want signs, they want proof, they want evidence. The next blank on your handout is dead faith is when one believes in God but does not obey His commandments. Dead faith is when one believes in God but does not obey His commandments. The Bible says in Proverbs, trust in the Lord with all your heart to lean not on your own understandings. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. You see, a lot of people show up to the wedding. A lot of people show up to the conversation, watching Nicodemus talk to Jesus. A lot of people show up to the well, and they want to see Jesus do things. They want to be on the outside. They want to be on the skirts. They don't want to, they don't want to have to participate. They just, they just want to watch. You see, these people want to be counted. They want the benefit of eternal life. But they don't, want to, they don't want to participate. They don't want to obey the commands of Jesus. The Bible says that that's a dead faith. James, the half-brother of Jesus, says what? That faith without works is dead. So you can say all day long that you're one thing, but your actions, Matthew 7, 14, a tree is known by its fruits, your actions are actually what you believe. You see, a dead faith is self-seeking. Is this, is this your faith? The dead faith is self-seeking. What, what am I going to get out of this? How is this going to benefit me? It's self-serving. What is this going to do for me? It's self-pleasing. Does this make me happy? God, if you'll just do this for me, I'll be satisfied. That's what a dead faith is. But a living faith is active. A living faith is active. It's growing. A living faith is Christ-exalting. 
You see, when things happen in your life and, and it's due to living faith, Jesus Christ is exalted because of that. Look at what happened to the woman at the well last week. She came to realize her sinfulness. She realized who Jesus was. She was confronted with the fact that she couldn't save herself and that only Jesus could do that. Jesus rescues her. He saves her. And what does the Bible say? I love the verse that says she left her water pot and went into the town and told about a man who knew everything about her. And what what happened because of that? The Bible says that they begged Jesus to stay a couple more days And that many people came to believe, not because of what the woman said, but because of what they had come to know for themselves. Living faith. Christ exalting. On your handout, obedience to God is the mark of true saving faith. Obedience to God is the mark of true saving faith. What what did Jesus say about that? He says, if you love me, you will what? You will keep my commandments, right? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so here's this man that stood before Jesus, and he had this opportunity. He says, okay, Jesus, you said go, and your son will live. My son will live. So I can believe you, and I can go, or I can keep asking you to do it the way I think it should be done. And so this is where the rubber meets the road. You see, what Jesus did, and what Jesus often does, is he placed himself between the request and the healing. So faith came not because of the healing, but in trusting that Jesus was the what? The healer. That he had the ability to do it, and so Jesus said, you've got to believe me before you believe the miracle. And so the rubber met the road. So let me ask you this. Would the noblemen have had faith that his son was healed, or would he go and require more evidence? What's he going to do? What does he do? What would we do? Put yourself in that situation. Do you say, okay, okay, I'll go. I'll go. I'm going to believe what you said, and I'm going. He had no proof at that point, right? It was pure faith. But what is faith? What does Ephesians say? What does Paul say? Faith is what? It is a gift from God. And so if we sit around, if the nobleman was to have sat around and said, I've got to conjure up enough faith so I can believe this and, and then I'll go. Well, then he would have sat there the rest of his life. Because humanly speaking, no one's going to say, oh yeah, that makes sense. Okay, yep, I'll go. I'll walk back 25 miles and believe what you said. Humanly speaking, that makes no sense. How could someone that is before my eyes heal someone that's 25 miles away instantly? It didn't make any any sense at all. But he had the choice to believe. And so he says, okay, I'm going to believe. What this did in the nobleman's life is it exposed the very core of his faith. Would he believe what Jesus says? He came to Jesus believing that Jesus could heal But would he leave believing the same? That's good. He came believing that Jesus could heal. But would he leave believing the same? What this did in the nobleman's life is it revealed his faith. You see on your handout, faith that is built on even if scenarios places the trust solely upon Jesus. 
One of my favorite songs right now is uh, by Mercy Me, and he, he sings the song, Even If You Don't, My Hope Is In The Lord. I think of that song, and I think about all the situations that you and I go through. You see, even if faith is never contingent upon the circumstance, there's people that are going through tough times right now. And even if faith doesn't change in those circumstances. You see, even if faith on your handout submits to the sovereignty of God. Even if faith says, you know what? I, I can't do this. I don't know how this is going to work out, God. I, I can't see any way... Anything good can come out of this. But I'm going to trust you. Does that sound familiar? Remember in the book of Daniel, there was these three guys that followed after Jesus, had funny names. They didn't uh, obey the king's command. And so, so the king said, toss them in the fire. He heated it up, killed the guards. It was so hot when he tossed them in the fire. You know the story, Shadrach, Shadrach Meshach, and Abednego. That's what Daniel says in verse uh, 17, chapter 3. The Bible says, if, so they're standing before the fire about to be tossed in, and this is what they said. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. He said, God can deliver us. He, he's able. He says, he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And then he says this, but if not. That's hard to say, isn't it? But if not, be it known to you, O king. Not we will know, because they already know. Or he wouldn't be saying this. He says, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. He says, even if he's still God. That's hard. That's hard. That's faith that only God can give. And so he says, even if, so here, here is where in our lives, whether or not we find victory or defeat in sorrow, it is that we trust Jesus enough to allow him to operate in whatever way he chooses. As we say, God, even if, I'm still going to trust you. You see, the Bible says, in Hebrews 11, 1, the most famous verse I would say about faith in the Bible says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, is the conviction of things not seen. It's the hope of things, it's the evidence of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You see, one must first believe, then he will see the results. And this is what this nobleman had to do. And so in verse 50, the latter part of verse 50, it says that he went on his way. It says the man believed the word that Jesus spoke and he went on his way. He believed. He says, okay, I'm not sure how that works out. I came thinking you, believing you could do it. 
And I'm going to leave believing that you can do it. You see, to believe in Jesus is the most effective way to set your mind at rest. You got these circumstances. I have these circumstances in my life. And tough times, uncertainty. You say, this is just crazy. How is this? God, what are you doing? But to rest in Jesus, to believe in Jesus, is the most effective way that you can set your mind at rest. So we're told about this nobleman that he left and he went back home. Now, he didn't simply, he didn't go straight home. Remember, it's four hours to go home. The word used here suggests that the nobleman believed. And so he picked up his work where he left off and he went on about his business. He didn't rush straight home. It's believed, depending on which time that you use, the, uh, that he was about 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and he had a four-hour journey home, but he did not get back home until the next day. But when he did return home, he found out that his son had been instantly healed. This is what the Bible says in verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The very instant Jesus said, your son will live. And so it says, the father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will Live and he himself believed in all of his household. You see, Jesus is showing us here in chapter 4 that whether it's the joy of the wedding or the sorrow at the nobleman's house, he is the object of our faith. You see, the world says that believing, or rather, seeing is believing. But Jesus says believing is seeing. Jesus, uh, John writes in chapter 20, verse 29, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So I want to give you some takeaways this morning. Got this nobleman's story, the faith of the nobleman and how God worked in his life. And so how can we, what is this, what is the takeaway for me and you today? There's three things quickly here this morning. The first thing on your handout, to follow and to obey Jesus, we will encounter a crisis of faith. You're going to come to a point in your life where God's going to call you to do something. And you're going to have to decide whether or not you're going to obey. Remember, obedience is the true mark of saving faith. You see, it's at this point, this crisis of faith, that many people decide not to follow what they sense God is leading them to do. And then they spend the rest of their life asking the question, why don't I experience God's presence and activity the way other Christians do? Does that ever happen to you? God called you to do something, and you didn't do it. And then you wonder, God, where are you? God, why are you not speaking to me? You see, you'll encounter this crisis of faith, and, and you'll have the opportunity to obey Jesus. You see, when God invites you to join Him, it is always a God-sized assignment, according to Henry Blackaby. 
You see, look at Scripture. Every time God calls us to do something, every time, every time you see in Scripture God commands someone or, or uh, asks someone to do something, it's, it's beyond their ability to do it. You see, you quickly realize that you can't do what He's asking you to do. If God doesn't help you, you will fail. This is where in your life and in my life, the crisis of belief is the opportunity whether to believe God for what He wants to do or not. I remember in 2011, I was pastoring uh, in Virginia, and uh, there's 2,000 people lived in the city, Appomattox, and uh, a little less than 2,000 people. And so we felt like that God wanted us to reach the community. So we, we began to pray, you know, God, what is it that you want us to do? And so we, uh, we brought in this crusade team uh, to, you know, this is, you know, country folks. And so we brought in this uh, power team that, you know, did exhibitions of strength and then they shared the gospel. And so how do you, how do you unite, how do you attract 2,000 people? And so we had this massive assignment. God wants to reach Appomattox. What do we do? How do we do that? God, what, what do you want to do? And so we prayed about it and felt like, okay, well, all right, Lord, we can do this. And so we reached out to the churches in the area and said, hey, you know, we really feel like God wants us to reach the, the county. This is not about our church. This is about the kingdom. And uh, so we want to have a crusade. And God just began to line things up. Well, you're, you know, pastor, you're never going to get the venue for that. So I go to the high school and I said, hey, um, we're thinking about having a crusade where strong guys break things. And uh, we were wondering if we could, have, we could use your gym. And they said, oh, yeah, that's no problem. You can use the school gym. And so we're thinking, okay, well, this is, this is working out really good. So then, then the question came up, well, what about liability? You've got, you know, all these things going to be breaking fire and they're throwing around these heavy things and, you know, you're on the school property and this is not a school event and that's just not going to work out because you got to have insurance for that. You got to have liability. The school won't cover that. Well, then I was approached by a first priority, like a Bible club for our schools. And he says, hey, I heard about what you're doing. And, uh, you know, we want to get involved in that and we want to sponsor it so you can use our liability insurance. What? Okay, that sounds great. Let's do that. And so God began to put all these pieces together that people said that'll never happen, it'll never work. And so we, Ryan and I were talking about this the other night. So we, we have the crusade, three nights. Guys getting up there doing silly, you know, lifting heavy things, ripping phone books in half, tearing car tags, and, you know, busting uh, hot water balloons with their, you know, just blowing air, all these crazy things. 2,000 people in the city. Over 1,000 people showed up to that crusade. 1,000 people. We had half the city at the crusade. I think there was over 300 decisions that were made for Jesus. This monument, monument task of trying to reach the city. And yet, you know, 25% of the city comes to faith in Jesus Christ through one event. We were talking about it the other night, and Melanie said, yeah, I remember the first night when the invitation was given. She said, when I looked up, you know, 90% of the crowd was down at the altar. She was like, I I thought I might have missed something. Maybe they're calling everybody to come down front. 
All these people are down front. And, and we had this huge, huge opportunity to reach the city for the gospel. God, how is that possible? God, how can we get the gospel to all these people? There's no way it'll happen, Pastor. Well, it did. And 300 people's lives were changed forever for it. You see, you'll encounter a crisis of faith. Number two, what you do in response to God's invitation reveals what you believe about God. When God calls you to do something, how you respond to that is what you actually believe about God. Is He able? That's the question you ask yourself is, is He able? We know the answer is yes. We just read it, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. But what you do in response to that is what you really believe. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will finish what he starts. You see, the way you respond at this turning point will determine whether you get involved with God and you experience something God-sized in your life that only he can do. Or that you leave the gate closed. What you do in response to God's invitation will, it will demonstrate, it will reveal what you really believe about God. Last but not least, faith is only as strong as the object it's placed in. If you place your faith in man and temporary things, you'll get temporary results. But if you place your faith in Jesus, He's the only one that's trustworthy. He's trustworthy. You see, in this story, I, I want to make a point here at the end. God's not asking the nobleman to do anything. The healing of his son has nothing to do with him. The wife could have came. No one could have came. Jesus could have chosen to do it randomly. This is not about what the nobleman did. This is about what Jesus did. You see, the object of the faith here in this story is Jesus. It's not about the nobleman. He's the hero. Jesus is the hero of the story. See, I think about you and me. This nobleman had a, had a boy that was sick. This child was sick, and he needed to be rescued. God looked down at humanity, and he saw the sickness of sin. And he said, my... My children need to be rescued. I got to do something about that. So he sent his son Jesus. He sent his son Jesus to do something for you and for me that only he could do. Live the perfect life. Be the perfect sacrifice. And raise himself from the dead. So that we could have eternal life. You see, faith is trusting that not only if things work out like we desire, but faith is trusting that even if things don't work out like we desire, that He's still God. And so I ask you this morning, how about your faith? Is it only if faith? Is it contingent upon the things that you think God should do in your life? 
Or is it the faith that says, you know what, God? I'm going to follow you. I'm going to obey you. I don't know where that's going to lead me. I don't know what it means for me. But I know what you mean to me. And so I'm going to follow you. Maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, I just don't know. I, how can you have that kind of faith? Mark chapter 9, there's a story about a child that was possessed and Jesus encountered him. The story in Mark talks about how Jesus asked the man, how long has your boy been sick? And he says, well, from childhood. And he says, but if you can do anything, the father said, have compassion and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the Bible says, Mark chapter 9, verse 24, it says, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. He said, Jesus, help my unbelief. I want to believe in you. He says, if you can help, and Jesus says, if I can help, oh, I can help you. He's saying to us this morning in your situation, wherever you find yourself, and you say, God, I don't, I don't know how this is going to work out, but if you can do anything, and he says to you this morning, oh, I can do something, to which we respond, oh, God, help my unbelief. God, help me to have faith in you. Luke chapter 17 Verse 5, we see the disciples had been out representing Jesus. And Jesus says, in, uh, the Bible says in Luke chapter 5, verse, or verse 17, uh, verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. You see, that's our prayer this morning. God, help our unbelief. God, increase our faith. Lord, show us who you really are, that we would trust you for who you are, not what you do. You see, it's even if faith or only if faith. What will you do with Jesus this morning?